The Tennessee and Mississippi Senate both passed pro-life legislation banning abortions based on sex, race, or disabilities, giving the partisans of abortion two options, either embrace the pro-life ethic or defend racism and eugenics. Guess which one they chose. Then the youngest surviving preemie in the world goes home with his parents healthy and thriving. This forces pro-abortion advocates to answer some very difficult questions. We will give you those questions and expose the eugenics, sexism, and racism of the pro-choice movement. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, if you have been enjoying this show and this has helped you in any way, remain tuned in on what's happening in these abortion wars, translate pro-abortion rhetoric into reality, and defend your pro-life beliefs, and give this show a rating and review. It really helps. We have a lot more young people tuning in, a lot of great reviews of people who say that this is their weekly show. It's helping them to articulate their beliefs and defend the lives of the unborn. So give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think, and tell a friend. Hey, got a big announcement, really exciting news for you. As of Sunday, June 28th, I will be taking Unaborted with Seth Gruber to the radio. This will be airing on K-Praise in San Diego County, that's KPRZ, on Sunday evenings at 6 to 6.30 p.m. You can tune in live at FM 106.1 or AM 1210. Obviously, it's just uh, available in San Diego County, but I believe you can listen live online as well at KPRZ or FM 106.1 and AM 1210s. We're going to be bringing this pro-life content to a lot more Christians while they're in their homes or driving in their cars, listening to Christian talk radio. So you can share that. You can pray about that as we want to reach more people in this election year in a political environment that is becoming more and more polarized on the debate over life, over the rights of the unborn. And we want to equip and disciple Christian young people, parents, and pro-life individuals to defend life and do so confidently. So the Tennessee Senate and the Mississippi Senate just very recently passed anti-discrimination abortion laws. Now, of course, they have yet to be signed into law. And of course, the uh, the lawyers who hate babies in the womb are already filing lawsuits. But I kind of want to just update you about what's happening because that's what we do here, right? We want to look at what's happening in the country. We want to unpack the ideas behind what is happening so you're equipped to engage the culture. So Tennessee Senate passes this anti-fetal discrimination heartbeat bill. <laughs> According to Live Action News on June 19th, Shortly after midnight, Friday morning, that is June 19th, senators in Tennessee passed a bill banning abortions after a preborn child's heartbeat can be detected. House Bill 2263, which passed the Senate with a 23-5 vote, also bans abortion due to the child's sex or race or due to a diagnosis of Down syndrome. The bill's only listed exception is to save the life of the mother. And of course, that's an exception which is not actually medically necessary. And we've talked about this on that show. There are no exceptions for rape or incest. Abortion providers who violate the law or who fail to perform an ultrasound prior to an abortion face felony charges. Also within the bill is the requirement that abortion facilities must post signs and information to patients that chemical abortions or the abortion pill may be reversible. Violators of that mandate would face a $10,000 fine. So the Tennessee Senate got a lot in here, right? It's a, it would be a heartbeat bill in the sense that once there's a detectable heartbeat, which is different than when the heartbeat starts, then abortion would be illegal, as well as if someone pursues an abortion on the basis of sex, race, or a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Furthermore, the abortionist has to perform an ultrasound and give the woman the opportunity to see that ultrasound. 
and have information saying, hey, if you take the abortion pill and you've already started starving your baby to death in the womb, that can be reversed. And there literally have been hundreds of lives saved already because of the abortion reversal pill, even though the abortion industry pushes the lie that it's it's fake science and fake medicine. Ironic coming from the people who ignore the science of embryology that life begins at conception. So that's what's going on in Tennessee. According to WBIR Knoxville, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, and the Center for Reproductive Rights have all filed emergency lawsuits asking the court to block the bill. And you have to wonder sometimes about how how the constitutionality of these lawsuits is allowed to continue, how they're not just immediately suspect and dismissed in court, because the people suing to ensure that pro-life laws and pro-life states don't get passed are always the ones whose income is tied to the legality of abortion, those who have a vested interest in keeping it legal and expanded. This would be like slave owners filing emergency lawsuits in 1783 after Massachusetts abolished slavery. Your motivations are immediately suspect since the legislation in question has a negative effect on your income and political goals. According to Hetty Wenberg, the ACLU Tennessee executive director, politicians should not be deciding what is best for women and certainly not making reproductive health care decisions for them. As promised, we will see them in court. Right. So this is always the move of the ACLU, the greatest legal enemy of unborn children. And she resorts to the typical euphemistic gymnastics that the abortion industry and their political serviles do, which is to call the dismemberment and limb tearing of babies in the womb reproductive health care decisions. According to the Tennessean, if the courts strike down the six-week ban in Tennessee in conjunction with the detection of a fetal heartbeat, the legislation goes on to automatically enact abortion bans at 8, 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24 weeks of gestation. In short, that means that if the courts dismiss the bill, it will then just go on to ban abortion at eight weeks. And if that's dismissed at 10 weeks and so on and so forth. So it's a good political move. So that's what's going on in Tennessee. Very similar over in Mississippi at the same time. Mississippi Senate passes the Life Equality Act, banning abortions based on race, sex, disability, or genetic makeup. So notice it's a little bit more expansive. It's not just saying banning abortions who the motivation for that abortion is if the baby was diagnosed with Down syndrome. No, they're saying any disability for any genetic reasons. According to Live Action News on June 18th, the Mississippi Senate has advanced a bill that would ban discriminatory abortions. The Life Equality Act would ban abortion based on a child's sex, race, disability, or genetic makeup, according to the Susan B. Anthony list. The bill passed a vote of 3311. The Life Equality Act passed the Mississippi House in March, but following the Senate's recent passage, the House and Senate bill amendments must concur and will then head to Governor Tate Reeves for his signature. And the bill has headed to the desk of Governor Tate Reeves, who is expected to sign it because he is a very pro-life governor and politician. According to the local Mississippi WTVA News, the Mississippi bill would set a prison sentence of up to 10 years for any physician or healthcare worker who knowingly violates the ban. It specifies that the woman getting the abortion would not be punished and the ban would not apply if the woman faces a medical emergency because of the pregnancy. So for all of the talk of how pro-life legislators want to criminalize abortion to throw women in jail, virtually all of the pro-life legislation that comes out of pro-life states exempts the woman from any legal punishment. And while we can have a conversation about what the future should look like if abortion is illegal in terms of the legal consequences that are brought against parents who arrange the death of their children, in the meantime, no legislation is being proposed that would criminalize 
women for getting abortions, just the abortionists who are actually holding the forceps. And Mississippi has long fought hard for the rights of the unborn. They're a very pro-life state. Last year, Mississippi legislators voted to ban abortion at the point where there is a detectable heartbeat, just like Tennessee is. And if you remember, 2019 was a crazy awesome year in the abortion wars. I mean, lots of pro-life legislation, more so than any other year practically, but also lots of pro-abortion legislation coming from blue states. But a judge blocked the restriction in Mississippi from becoming law, and so Mississippi is stepping up to bat again for unborn children. So you have these anti-discrimination abortion laws coming from Tennessee and Mississippi. Unfortunately, the legal abortion serviles are all filing lawsuits, but I want to talk about why this is an important strategy and how this fits into the larger larger strategy of enshrining in law the rights of the unborn. But first, we're offering a new feature here at Unaborted. Starting soon, I'll be taking your questions. We're compiling those, and we want to get to those on the show. So if you have questions about life, culture, politics, faith, the abortion issue, anything you wish I could cover or haven't heard me cover, then email your questions to unaborted at sethgruber.com. That's unaborted at sethgruber.com. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted. So I want to talk about the strategy of attempting to ban discriminatory abortions and and why that's actually important and a very strategic move, especially in this current political climate, because maybe you're listening to this, right? And you're wondering, well, why focus on only banning abortions that are based on sex, race and disabilities? What's the like, are those children any more valuable just because they're being targeted for specific Uh, you know, gender, racial or disability reasons, why only try to restrict those kind of abortions? Because obviously the motivation of the abortion doesn't really matter, does it? So why not just ban all abortions and protect all unborn children? Well, you know, if if you're not tuned into the pro-life movement and the history of the pro-life movement, that has been tried a lot. (laughs) They were called personhood amendments, right? That that respective states tried to pass and of course, we've tried to attack Roe v. Wade on the federal level as well. But typically, those challenges come up from the local state governments that would hopefully pose a significant federal threat to Roe versus Wade. But these personhood bills, unfortunately, have never gained the political support necessary to become law, right? Because politics flows downstream from culture. And so if we want the political capital necessary to actually pose a significant threat to Roe versus Wade, and if we want to be able to eventually pass federal legislation that would directly challenge Roe versus Wade, then we need to have the cultural capital necessary. And so unfortunately, personhood bills have never been successful in posing that challenge. Additionally, thanks to the 1992 decision Planned Parenthood v. Casey, if state legislation creates what is called an undue burden that would restrict a woman's access to abortion in some way, then such legislation is automatically deemed unconstitutional. That's according to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which has created the precedent to defeat so many of these types of legislation. And the abortion legal serviles always appeal to Planned Parenthood v. Casey in attacking or justifying their lawsuits against pro-life legislation such as these ones in Tennessee and Mississippi. So pro-lifers have thus always crafted and attempted to pass various forms of legislation that chip away at the abortion behemoth. And they do this by planting moral premises in the law that in the 
and will result in the full respect of all unborn human life at all stages of development. This is the strategy of incrementalism, to incrementally chip away at the abortion behemoth because the all-or-nothing bills were never successful. And so we're going to try to plant these types of moral premises in the law that restrict some abortions. And then that logic, as it creates precedent cases, will lead to the consistent protection of all unborn life in the womb. Robert P. George over at Princeton University said this best. He said, planting premises in the law whose logic demands in the end full respect for all members of the human family can be a valuable thing to do, even where those premises seem modest. Yeah, it seems like a pretty modest premise, doesn't it? That, hey, can we just not abort babies if your motivation is because you don't want a girl or because you know you just found out your baby has Down syndrome? That's modern day eugenics. And yes, that is a fairly modest premise. And yet, of course, even those premises are attacked by the abortion serviles. And what does that tell you, by the way? It tells you that they recognize the challenge that it will pose to their worldview that the unborn child is never a person in the womb and so therefore abortion should be allowed and legal through all nine months of pregnancy. But here's the strategy, right? If we can succeed in passing legislation that makes it illegal to kill unborn babies because they're disabled, black, or not the preferred gender, it becomes much easier to make the obvious case that aborting babies is wrong regardless of the reason one might seek their death. It's not wrong to abort babies simply if the motivation of their parents is to not have a girl or not have a disabled baby. It's wrong because they're human beings, but focusing on discriminatory abortions is a strategic step to plant those moral premises in the law. And context is everything, right? Our country is currently absorbed in conversations, debates, and arguments over racism and discrimination. So this was a very strategic move by Tennessee and Mississippi to frame their pro-life legislation in terms of anti-discrimination, because in that case, how could we possibly accept the permissibility of discriminatory abortions that target unborn babies for traits they have no control over? Isn't that why racism is evil and wrong? Because it mistreats and discriminates against other human beings based on traits they have no control over. African-Americans have no control over their skin color. Asians have no, none of us have any control over our skin color or ethnicity. So racism is evil and disgusting and wrong because it doesn't judge people based on their actions, which they have control over. It judges people based on traits they have no control over. And framing the legislation in this way makes the point that similarly targeting unborn babies for traits they have no control over should also be wrong and illegal because it is discrimination. And in this case, it's modern day eugenics. And we're going to get to that in a second. So the abortion industry and their the movement, their automatic opposition to banning discriminatory abortions based on sex, race or disabilities, that is their public endorsement of eugenics and gender side. They are endorsing the the elimination of human beings because of their gender, their race, or their disabilities simply because they don't want to accept the premise that some life in the womb shouldn't be targeted. And if you accept that premise as an abortion partisan, then your worldview will entirely collapse because if some unborn children shouldn't be targeted for abortion in the womb, then maybe none of them should. Now, you might be thinking, you know, is all of this legislation really necessary anyways? Who, who is aborting babies based on sex, race, or disabilities? Well, I'm going to show you the sexist, racist, and ableist motivations of many who obtain or perform and profit off of 
abortions. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then consider consider becoming a patron of the show, right? We're taking this to the radio. We want to move to two episodes a week. And we want to begin engaging the public on a weekly basis with conversations that bring these types of pro-life ideas we talk about here at Unaborted to the yeah, the common man and woman who probably doesn't like the idea of third trimester abortions, but they're kind of your default pro-choice person, which is, I would argue, is a vast majority of Americans. They're pro-choice by default because they've absorbed and inhaled the cultural lies, but they have enough of a functioning moral compass to say, I don't like nine-month abortions, but they'll still vote for pro-choice candidates because they've believed bad ideas about biology and human equality. So we want to challenge people gently and graciously to change their position by examining evidence they haven't seen or heard before. So to help us create more content and Stay on the air and bring you more content. Head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted. That's patreon.com forward slash unaborted to become a patron of the show. Would you consider supporting us for one latte a, a month at five, 10, maybe $15 a month? That would really mean a lot. As Greg Cunningham once said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And we just want to inspire more people to be part of those who protect life in the womb. So help us do that by becoming a patron of the show. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So I'm assuming you probably see the importance of this strategic move by Tennessee and Mississippi to try to ban abortions based on discriminatory reasons. I, I think you see that strategy to plant moral premises in the law that would in the end lead to the protection of all human life and utilize the context that we're in over how bad discrimination is against other people to make the point that discriminating against unborn children for traits they have no control over is meaningful as well. But maybe you're wondering, is this really a thing? I mean, like, are people going around aborting babies for being girls or for being the wrong race or for being disabled? Well, unfortunately, the answer is yes. And oftentimes it comes actually from those who target unborn children, from those who are incentivized to perform abortions and who are happy to accept a woman's reason to abort for any of these eugenics reasons. So let's go through each one of these, right? For sexist reasons, for racist reasons, and for ableist reasons. Planned Parenthood has long condoned and even assisted with sex-selective abortions. And this would be the idea of gendercide, which has become a massive problem worldwide, certainly in areas of Asia, which we'll get to in a second, but even so increasingly in America. So live action did a undercover expose video several years ago in 2012 in Texas and New York. And they un, uh, they uncovered and exposed Planned Parenthood at multiple facilities for being willing to condone and assist with abortions after being told and learning that the woman was seeking an abortion because she wanted a boy. And if it was a girl, she was going to abort it. Straight up gender side. Now, of course, these were undercover journalists, so they weren't actually going to do that. But interesting to see how Planned Parenthood reacts when they're told that information. So here's a, here's a brief clip of this undercover video, specifically in Texas in 2012. Have a seat here. Thanks. So you're pregnant. Okay, that's what I thought, yeah. And so what are you leaning more towards? I see that you say you want to terminate if it's a girl, so are you just wanting to continue the pregnancy um, in the meantime, or what? Yeah, I think that would be the... Um, the plan. Usually when they detect, you know, whether or not it's a boy or a girl. I see. So you would be like right. Right Sometimes there. they can tell four. 
I mean, I've seen that happen, but it just depends. Depends. Mm -hmm. Who do you think I should go and just ask for an ultrasound and just not tell them that I'm going to terminate if it's a girl? Or I just feel like there's been some judgment for my. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, um, I would probably think I still sh just shouldn't worry about telling them that I'm that I would be terminating if it's a girl. Just kind of right. Just keep it quiet and then come here. Yeah, I, I would. And I'd want to schedule, um, try to schedule an ultrasound with an OB around then, and then I would still mm -hmm. be able to come back here mm -hmm. for a termination no, if it was a girl. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And, and again, you know, if you go and see an OBGYN, um, you know, pretty soon, and you do an, uh, an ultrasound to see exactly how far along you are. Okay. Then you can really detect. Okay, this is how far along I am. This is how. This is when I need to, need to you know. Yeah. Uh, this is when I need, uh, when I'll know whether or not it's a boy or girl. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So again, you'll be like 20 weeks. That's five months. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. That is really helpful. Thank you for understanding. You're I, welcome. I was worried that I'm, I would get I'm, judgment I'm, for terminating oh, because no. of the gender and you've been so. No. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, help you as much as possible to <laughs> so thank you, you, know, you uh... so there you have it and that's just a segment of the full undercover video just in Texas, not to mention the one that they did in new york so planned parenthood advises waiting until the unborn child is four to five months old to detect if it's a girl for a late-term abortion. Planned Parenthood coaches her on how to use Medicaid to pay for detecting the baby's gender for a late-term abortion. And Planned Parenthood advises her on how to get an ultrasound from a local OBGYN to confirm the sex of the baby and then turn around for a discriminatory sex-selective abortion at Planned Parenthood. This is full-on gender side. And Planned Parenthood is happy to assist with it and condone it. Uh, Mara Hvesendal, in her book Unnatural Selection, which I believe is a New York Times bestseller and was used as um, evidence in a uh, Senate Judiciary hearings addressing the gender side issue several years ago. And she, in fact, testified in this um, hearing. She says in her book that there are over 160 million females missing from the from Asia's population. And that's more than the entire female population of the United States. And this imbalance, she says, is mainly the result of sex-selective abortions. So gendercide has become a massive issue, certainly worldwide. And the behemoth of abortions here in the country is happy to assist in that gendercide. So the question for the pro-choice advocate is this. Since you claim to be an advocate of women's rights, do you have any problem with this? Do you have any problem with the targeting of women because of their gender, something they have no control over? Well, hard to make a case that you're a feminist in support of women's rights. So that evidence right there is one of the many reasons why it's important to take this political strategic approach in banning abortions that are pursued because of the sex of the child. Now, what about racism? What about racism? We've talked a lot about this recently because of the current national conversation over Black Lives Matter and systemic racism. And of course, go back and listen to the episode, All Black Lives Matter, both pre-born and born. And we talked about the racism in Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. And so we're going to show you this brief clip that we showed months ago on the show, showing Planned Parenthood has repeatedly and excitedly accepted donations earmarked specifically for aborting black babies. And they did this in a couple and, and I'm sorry, a handful of, of different Planned Parenthood locations as well. Again, live action news, undercover expose. So here is that clip. Hello, this is Irene. 
Hi, um, I'm interested in, in uh, making a donation. I'd like to fund one abortion. Okay. I was wondering if that would be possible. Yes, we can definitely put that. Um, can I make the donation specifically for a minority group? Like a specific group yeah. of color? Like a yeah. group of... I mean, like, I want the abortion to be for an African-American baby. Okay. And I was wondering if that could be possible. The exact amount we charge right now is $450 for an abortion. Okay, $450. Mm -hmm. And um, we can definitely designate it for an African-American. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, if I wanted to help fund multiple abortions, could you also specify that this can be done for um, a specific group? Mm-hmm. Great, great. Um, well, I'm really excited, you know, because I really face trouble with affirmative action. I don't want my kids to be um, uh, disadvantaged, um, you know, yeah. against against um, against blacks within college and you know the less um, less blacks out there, the better. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange time for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, you'll receive the check in a few days. So there you have it. And that was just one clip from one clinic where they exposed Planned Parenthood for excitedly accepting donations that were made with the express purpose of eliminating black people, of creating, of eliminating black babies. And, you know, to her credit, you can sense the woman's, you know, uncomfortableness of saying, oh, yeah, it's strange times out there. Uh, uh, uh. So if you're uncomfortable with that idea of targeting black babies for an abortion, then why are you working at Planned Parenthood? Is, is abortion wrong only if it has racial intentions? No, it's wrong because it kills human beings and racial motivations make it all the worse. But it's not wrong for that reason. Furthermore, of course, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a racist and a eugenicist who spoke at KKK rallies and encouraged and glorified the use of birth control to weed out blacks, disabled and the mentally ill. And we've talked about this on this show. Margaret Sanger wrote a piece called Birth uh, in Birth Control Review called Birth Control and Racial Betterment. <laughs> that title by itself should scare the bleep out of you. Using birth control to pursue racial betterment? That already makes you a racist because that insinuates that races are somehow better than others and so some have to be bettered over and against others. She said, before eugenicists and others who are laboring for racial betterment can succeed, they must first clear the way for birth control. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising stream of the unfit. So there you go. If you want to succeed as a eugenicist, you need to use birth control to pursue racial betterment. That's Margaret Sanger. And of course, as we've said on the show, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, African-Americans account for 13.4% of the population. Divide that by half and you get the female population of black Americans, which would be 6.7%. But they obtained 36% of the country's abortions in 2015, according to the CDC. That is massively disproportionate, obviously. And a study by Protecting Black Life found that 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are strategically located within walking distance of African and or Hispanic communities. So 6.5% of the American public per, per, uh, receives or obtains 36% of the country's abortions. Planned Parenthood knows this. So they strategically place their clinics in minority neighborhoods to make the importation of black lives and the extermination of black lives as easy as possible. Can you imagine if the Klan, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was controlling the implementation and geographic location of Planned Parenthood facilities, 79% of which are located in heavily populated black neighborhoods? Would secular liberals and woke progressives take issue with that? Of course they would. 
because the racist motivations would be clear. <laughs> but the end result is the same. The end result is the same, a dwindling black population and a black birth rate that's nearly flatlined. Whether the current people in Planned Parenthood have racial bigotry and targeting black babies is really beside the point. Their organization was founded on racism and the result is the same, a dwindling black population because of a disproportionate amount of abortions in black neighborhoods and messages and worldviews that are pushed by the abortion industry that, you know, if you're poor... If you're a black family, if you're a black single mother, you, you know, you really can't bring another child into the world. I mean, you're poor. Like, this would be too hard on your income and family. So do the compassionate thing and kill your child. Unbelievable. So, yes, the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood uh, is willing to condone gendercide. They're willing to condone racially motivated abortions. And they're perfectly fine with the idea of eugenics, the targeting of people groups who are disabled and are not, as Margaret Sanger would say, fit to live. So we need to uh, we need to pursue the elimination of the unfit. A press release from the Susan B. Anthony list on this Mississippi bill, right, banning discriminatory abortions by Sue Libel said, Mississippi is a solidly pro-life state that understands abortions carried out because of a baby's sex, race, or potential disability such as Down syndrome is no less than modern day eugenics. That is right. Abortion has become the solution to disabled children today. And simultaneously, it's become the tool of ableists who believe that our world will just be a better place if we can purify humanity by purging the unfit from our midst. A 2007 New York Times article reported that the majority of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome through genetic testing are aborted. So if you take the if you do the genetic test to determine if the unborn child has Down syndrome in the womb, which, by the way, oftentimes it's a false positive then over 90%, according to some studies, of those children are aborted based on that reason. And you might remember last year, Iceland celebrated the fact that they had eradicated Down syndrome from their country, except they hadn't. They just eradicate all of the humans who have Down syndrome in the womb. The estimates are that one or two babies with Down syndrome are born a year in Iceland because they just rip their limbs from their body before they're born and then celebrate that they've eradicated Down syndrome. This is modern day eugenics. And I'm reading more and more stories online of parents who are openly sharing that they aborted their child because of a disability like trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 or Down syndrome. We talked about this on a recent episode called Abortion is Not Beautiful. Last month in May 2020, Rewire News, a real garbage heap of a leftist website, ran a piece, women sharing their stories about how their abortion was beautiful. One woman who aborted her baby because the baby had trisomy 13 said, after searching our hearts and soul and crying a river of tears, my husband and I decided that the most compassionate and loving thing we could do as parents would be to end the pregnancy, i.e. pay a physician to rip the arms off of our child. Even though I had an abortion, it was an act of love. <laughs> and my son was still welcomed into the world with loving arms and he only knew the love, warmth and security of his mother. No, that's not all that he knew. In fact, the last thing that he knew were the forceps tearing his limbs off because you thought it was compassionate to pay a physician to do that. It's not compassionate to kill children to prevent them future suffering, even if you know that that suffering will happen. And nobody would accept this type of garbage euphemistic BS if someone said, the most compassionate thing for me to do was to kill my infant after we learned he had trisomy 13 after he was born. But don't worry, the last loving things he knew were the hands of his mother before I gave him to the doctor to throw him into the, into the fire. My goodness. But if, it, if you do that to a baby in the womb, it's compassionate. This is modern day eugenics. 
but it's being pitched as compassionate because we have decided as we have deified ourselves into modern gods that we can dictate who gets to live and who gets to die based off of whether we perceive that they will cause our life to be more difficult. That's what this is really about is the selfishness of parents who don't want to raise children who will be difficult to raise. So we'll convince ourselves it's compassionate to kill those children in the womb. Modern day eugenics. So the question for the pro-choice advocate is this. Do you have any problem with this, given its similarity with the eugenics movement, the slow and deliberate elimination of those our society deems unfit to live? Regardless of how they answer that question, they will look like a moral monster. If they say, no, I don't have any problem with this, then they have just green-lighted and endorsed eugenics, which the abortion movement has done by suing Tennessee and Mississippi over their anti-discrimination policies. Um, if they say, yes, I have a problem with that, then they're acknowledging that that's wrong. And if it's wrong to target unborn children in the, in the womb for being disabled, then it's wrong to target all unborn children in the womb because they're not valuable because they're disabled. It's not like only children who are disabled shouldn't be aborted in the womb. No children should be aborted in the womb because they're human beings with a human nature. So this is why policies that strategically place the abortion conversation in a discriminatory Context, such as targeting unborn children for being the wrong sex, race, or being disabled, is a strategic move. And we're going to get to more of the strategic moves and how we can expose the bankruptcy of abortion ideology in this next story. But first, I've teamed up with my new friend Sarah Vienna for a pro-life church tour. Sarah is an international speaker and singer who works in Romania and the States defending the cause of the needy from unborn to elderly. And our church tour is called I'm Alive. And it's based upon her song, I'm Alive, about the song of the child to their mother. I'm Alive tour captures both the beauty and the truth of the pro-life position. Speaking to both the head and the heart of those in your churches, this tour will win the hearts of your church for life while also equipping them to defend life. Based on biblical truths, this tour can help your church create a culture of life that fights to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. We have moved this tour to booking churches for the fall due to COVID-19, but it will fill up fast and we are booking churches now for the fall. So to bring I'm Alive to your church, email us at imalivetour at gmail.com. I'm alive tour at gmail.com for questions and bookings, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So just as the strategic approach of pro-life legislators to expose the willingness of abortion activists to endorse abortion for virtually any reason, whether it's for racial or eugenics reasons or not. Similarly, even the presence of a unborn child or the presence of a prematurely born child can also do the same thing, can also call into question the very ideas wrapped up in the pro-choice position. And nowhere has this been made more clear than in the case of this new baby, Jamarius, who was recently released from the hospital after being in the NICU for months. So he is now the youngest surviving preemie in the world, born at 21 weeks and going home healthily. According to Live Action News on June 22nd by Cassie Chesser, born on December 20th, Jamarius weighed just 13 ounces and measured smaller than a hand. His mother and father, Jessica McPherson and Jamarius Harbor Sr., told doctors when Jessica went into premature labor to do everything they could to save their son 
We looked at each other in the eye and I told him just to give it a try. McPherson told Fox 5, I just want you to try. As long as you try, that's all that matters to me. Don't just up and say that you can't do it. Just because you haven't done it doesn't mean it can't be done. And this is actually very important because tragically, there have been many cases throughout the world, and we've covered this on the show before, where medical professionals will simply refuse to care for micropremies who were born before that doctor's understanding of viability. Viability being the concept that once you can survive outside the womb, once you can be born and survive, then you're viable. It's a, it's a stupid standard because the pro-abortion movement uses that to try to justify their opposition to common sense pro-life legislation by saying, well, no, the baby's not viable. Right? And that fits into the larger pro-abortion worldview that believes that you only have value if you can live independently. So as long as you're dependent on the mother, you're not viable, then you're not a person with rights. So it's, it's a stupid standard anyways. But a lot of medical professionals have a certain stage of development at which they believe the baby's viable. But it's completely subjective because babies are always born earlier. And if the doctors do succeed in saving their life and they try to save their life, then that preemie breaks a new record of being the youngest baby born and to have survived. So the concept of viabilities is completely tangible. It's completely uh, intangible, rather. It's completely subjective. And it's constantly changing based off of medical advancements that are enabling us to save prematurely born babies earlier and earlier. Luckily, these medical professionals did do everything they could to save baby Jamarius. Friends of the family wrote, quote, Jamarius is the youngest surviving preemie in the world, born at only 21 weeks and zero days, weighing 13 ounces and shorter than a ruler is long. Today, he said, peace out to the NICU and going home with his parents. The friend of the family wrote, he's just short of nine pounds. Congratulations to Jamarius for breaking out of the NICU after a six month stay, approving every doctor wrong and making strides of progress for all micro preemies. That's right. He's proving now that a baby can be born at 21 weeks and zero days. That is incredible. And survive. So micro preemies can be treated and their lives saved. Now, we talked about in February President Trump's State of the Union address that highlighted a mother, Robin Schneider, and her daughter, Ellie, who was born at 21 weeks and six days, six days older than baby Jamarius. And he was honored by President Trump during the State of the Union, or she was, rather. Uh, according to that story, St. Luke's, where he was born, was the first hospital in the area to initiate a program designed to treat very prematurely born babies before 24 weeks of pregnancy. And this St. Luke's hospital is in Kansas City. According to KSBH Kansas, Nationally, babies born prior to the 24-week mark have a 6% survival rate. But at St. Luke's, they have a 50% survival rate. It's clear that medical intervention has made a huge difference. Well, there you go. There's the proof in the pudding, right? If you intervene, if you, if you train up personnel and invest in medical equipment to save micropremies, then the survival rate goes up to 50%. But nationally, the average is only 6% for babies born before 24 weeks because very few places like St. Luke's are doing anything to save these prematurely born babies. Again, that's why you read horror stories of parents whose micropremies are laying on their chest and they're screaming for the doctor to try to save their baby and they do nothing because these evil doctors of death stare at them and say, sorry, my understanding of viability is 25 weeks. Your baby is 24 weeks. Sucks for them. Insane, evil, it should be illegal. So difficult questions are raised here by baby Jamaris's life, right? And, and so I want to go through what some of those difficult questions are for the partisans of abortion. Baby Jamarius's life calls into question the very ideology of choice, of pro-choice. 
So does the birth canal confer personhood? <laughs> so, Because apparently, I, I would hope that no pro-abortion advocate would try to pass laws that would legalize and fund the dismemberment of baby Jamarius after he's born. Nobody likes the idea of that. So what's the difference between 21-week born baby Jamarius and 21-week unborn baby Jamarius or 30-week unborn baby Jamarius had he stayed in the womb that long? The birth canal, a six-inch journey. So does the birth canal confer personhood such that when baby Jamarius is born at 21 weeks, he's a person with rights? Yay! It's the magical personhood conferring birth canal. Or is his value based on his humanity, which would be which would stand regardless of the location he finds himself in. So why is it okay to dismember a 21-week baby in the womb, but not outside the womb? (laughs) More questions for the partisans of abortion. How is a six-inch difference in location relevant to the child's value? What What if the doctors were able to place baby Jamarius after he was born back in the womb, and allow him two more months of prenatal development. Okay, it's just a thought experiment. What if they could do that? Would he have gained human rights upon exiting the birth canal and then lost them again when he was placed back in the womb? (laughs) According to the ideology of choice, you'd have to say yes, because they will defend abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all, as long as the baby's in the womb. Unless you're Ralph Northam or the majority of Senate Democrats who refuse to vote for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. But that's just a whole nother level of moral decay. But most pro-choice advocates are not going to defend the morality or the legality of dismembering baby Jamarius after he was born. So what if we could put him back in the womb and then he could continue two more months of prenatal development? Would, Would he have suddenly gained human rights that stand apart from whether their mother wants them? But then lose them again when he's put back in the womb, right? This is the this is the lunacy of the pro-abortion position. As savoring micropremies becomes the standard in medicine, which I think it will, as we develop the medical technology to do so, and new standards for healthcare professionals to be required to act to save those lives. So as saving micropremies becomes the standard in medicine, the question for the pro-abortion advocate is this: Would you oppose laws? requiring doctors to always attempt to save babies born early since you support Roe versus Wade, which denies that such babies are persons with equal rights. (laughs) So if they say, no, I wouldn't oppose laws, I would support laws that would uh, require healthcare professionals to work to save babies born prematurely. Okay, then that means those babies have intrinsic dignity and that their lives should be defended. And a six-inch journey didn't change anything about the nature of that child. Here's the last question for pro-abortion advocates. Why should it be wrong to kill baby Jamarius at 21 weeks, but okay to kill a fetus in utero at 28 weeks? Because <laughs> they will defend abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, right? They will. And we've seen that time and time and time and time again. They won't even vote to allow a vote, right? They filibustered Senator Ben Sass's Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which didn't even restrict abortion. All it said is if, if you're a baby and you survive an abortion and you escape through the birth canal and you're born and you're no longer in the womb, 
Can we at least say and agree with you partisan abortion hacks that that baby has to be transferred to a hospital, given the same medical level of attention and care that any other baby would be given under normal circumstances? And if the abortionist or staff refuse to care for that child, don't report the fact that a baby was born alive during a botched abortion or kill that child, they'll be charged with infanticide or legal repercussions. That's all it said. And how many, do you remember, how many Senate Democrats voted in support of that bill? Three. Every other Senate Democrat in the country ref- voted no on that bill or, or, or just placed a no vote. I just, I just won't vote, which is the same as saying no. They won't even, they won't even come out against infanticide. So, of course, they're, they, they're not going to come out against third trimester abortion. So here's the question. Hey, pro-abortion politicians, pro-abortion movement, if you would say it's wrong to kill baby Jamarius at 21 weeks after he's out of the birth canal, And he's there and he's in the NICU and he's on a breathing tube. And the parents are saying, please do everything you can to save our baby. That's our baby. If it would be wrong to kill him, how can you defend killing 30 weak children? Children who are full on nine weeks older than baby Jamarius, but they're just in the womb, right? They're just six inches away. Disgusting. Ridiculous. I'm not using baby Jamarius's life purely just as a political opportunity to make a point. His life makes that point all by itself. His life calls into question the very ideology of abortion. These types of movements and moments strategically call into question the reality of choice, whether it's banning abortions for discriminatory reasons, which places moral premises in the law that in the end will suggest, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill any babies in the room, regardless of the motivations of why one might seek that abortion. Or baby Jamarius, whose life calls into question and raises all these uh, contradicting value statements from the pro-choice movement. Either way, it reveals the inability of pro-choice individuals to hold together a coherent position and a coherent worldview. Why? Because nothing about their position and worldview is coherent, is it? It's based on fantasies and it's based on lies. It's based on an inverted perception of morality and biology. It's based on the idea that sexual freedom includes the right to slaughter the the products of sex, little human beings who have done nothing. Well, that's all we have time for for today. Thanks for joining me. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think so we can reach more people. It really helps. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for bookings, for training videos, for my speaking schedule, and to subscribe to my newsletter. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.